welcome to this episode of Saintly Witnesses, where I talk to the Catholic behind the account. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Capodacano, who's going to come on and share some information about uh, racial justice and the Catholic Church, and also talk about his really insightful um, you know, journey as a Catholic. So thank you for coming on and providing this uh, crucial information. Thank you, Efren, for having me. It's an honor. And I just want to say you've been a friend. I'm great, grateful to get to know you and also grateful to be able to speak to your listeners. I'm actually a listener myself, so I'm humbled to be part of your your podcast today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, so Matt has contributed at Where Peter Is. He's contributed at Crisis Magazine. He's also contributed some articles in National Catholic Reporter. Uh, he has his own personal blog at MKappa on Medium. Dot com and he's just an all-around good tweeter of Catholic social teaching and talking about the Catholic Church and racial justice. Um, I like to start these things off by how we got acquainted. Uh, me and Matt have been chatting and dialoguing online for um, about a year now, and I've just been super enriched by his content and like his conversations. And I know we've talked in the past before about getting him on here, so we finally got him on now. Um, so let's get started. Um, so talk a little bit about your faith journey. Like, how was it growing up, middle life, and it led you to now? Sure. Well, I am a cradle Catholic. And for those of you who can't see me in person, I'm of East Indian origin. So I was born in the U.S., but my family's from India. So people are surprised to find out that I'm a cradle Catholic. Many people think, oh, did you convert to the Catholic faith? Or how old were you when you became Catholic? Or were your parents converts to the faith or grandparents? And Truthfully, Christianity has been in India since the time of St. Thomas, the Apostle. That's 52 AD. Christianity has existed in India much longer than most of Europe. So I am very grateful for my Catholic Christian heritage that has been passed down through the Apostles. In fact, in my opinion, and as church records show, the Christians in India are among the early Christians. So I'm grateful to have that that heritage that, that stems from the, the early Christians. My family, because we are um, of uh, East Indian origin, we are also of the of Eastern Catholic backgrounds. So they, there's a Roman Catholic Church, of course, and then there's, there are many Eastern Catholic churches, one of which is the church that I, I belong to called the Cyril Malabar Church. And that stems also from St. Thomas. Uh, along the line of St. Thomas is also the Chaldean Church in Iraq. But the Cyril Malabar Church has uh, its heritage and a liturgy that is Syriac-based. And over, and over time, there's a, there's a long history of, of kind of an ebb and flow. But long story short, there, there's Syriac, there's Aramaic, the language of Jesus. But the predominant language is a language of the people of South India, the state of Kerala, where I'm from, or my family's from. And that language is Malayalam. And what's what's really interesting about this heritage is uh, I actually had an article go up in crisis today and the editor, Eric Sammons, chose a very cool photo. It's a procession in in the state of Kerala, a religious procession where there are three elephants and they're adorned with uh, each of the elephants has a religious image on it. One has St. Alfonso, who's one of the first saints of South India. There's one image with Christ and one image of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So it just goes to show how there's an Indian identity within that that celebrated that celebrates the Catholic faith, and it's it's really remarkable. But my prayer life as a junior high just started off just 
what I can see now is very much a contemplative style of prayer, praying with scripture. That also led me to an interest in the apologetics work. So I grew up in Southern California, which is big in the apologetics movement, names like Tim Staples, Jesse Romero. And I got to read and listen to various, various leaders in apologetics that helped form my faith. When I was in high school, our, my family switched to a, a different parish run by a religious order known as the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. They are very much devoted to the Eucharist, to Marian uh, devotion, to uh, the magisterium. So I was formed with, with a rich understanding of the faith from my parents, from my parish. In fact, my confirmation classes were taught by the priests of the parish, which is kind of rare. Most, most confirmation programs are taught by volunteers or lay people. Um, and my experience was rich in the sense that we were learning straight from the documents of Pope St. John Paul II. So that was, it was, it was not like just kind of like a, a book or it wasn't, it wasn't taken lightly. So I was really given a rich and upfront in-depth understanding of the faith. I off and on from junior high, high school, and as a young adult thought on and off about the priesthood. I'm an only child, only son in my family. So for my family, that would that was a whenever I entered into those conversations, that was something that they would have a lot of hesitancy around. It wasn't until in college, I went to a Jesuit university, Creighton University, and I came across this contemplative community in Omaha. And I decided to spend a couple of years in discernment with them. I spent, uh, I did their postulancy, began their novitiate. I discerned I wasn't called to remain in that community. I felt I was called to something more active in ministry. So I graduated from Creighton in 2003. I was discerning between the diocesan priesthood and the Jesuits, but I wanted to take some time to work before I make that decision. So I worked in finance for about six years. 2009, I decided to enter the Jesuits. I spent uh, a little over three years in the Jesuits. Uh, the, what they call the novitiate, the first two years of the Jesuits was mainly in Louisiana. And then I did philosophy and theology studies at Fordham in New York. And it was at that time at, while I was at Fordham that I discerned a call to, to lead the Jesuits. And uh, so I left about November 2012, I went back to work in finance. I eventually met my now wife. I met her in 2014, got married in 2015. We were expecting our, our first son. He was born in April of 2018. But prior to that, we got to visit Rome. And while we we're at Rome, we got a chance to meet the Holy Father. And it was a really a blessed meeting, not just because we got to meet Pope Francis, but I had memorized some phrases in Spanish. I, I know some Spanish, but I'm, I'm not practicing it on a daily basis. But make sure, all right, if I do get a chance, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop. I'm gonna ask Pope Francis some something bold. So I asked him to pray for the, our child that we were expecting, and he joyfully and gladly did. And we have photos of it. It's a, it's a very blessed moment. So we have one son who's three, and we just welcomed another son who's now eight months. And as a layperson now, I've been able to really reap the benefits of my faith upbringing from my parents, from the religious experiences I had in my youth, as well as in religious life and process that in, in my present 
in the present. So that's encompass writing and speaking on the faith and racial justice, as well as other areas of spirituality, discernment, Ignatian spirituality, Eastern spirituality, Eastern liturgy. So it's truly a gift to to be able to take the faith and to share it with others. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And we're definitely going to piggyback up and talk more about your experience with the Jesuits um, after this next question. Um, so you've been a Catholic all your life um, and you were in, in formation for a bit too. So you have like a pretty intense knowledge of um, you know Catholic theology. What's something that you would say or a piece of advice that you would give to someone who is discerning the Catholic church or thinking about becoming a Catholic? What's one thing that you were saying? Firstly, for someone who's coming to the faith and speaking as a cradle Catholic, I want to say that anyone who's interested in the faith, new convert, all of you give us life, give us hope. All of you are a gift because you all are an inspiration to us. It, it helps us on a journey. It gives us new life, new step in our faith. So I would say uh, we, while we are definitely companions on the journey, we want to be a resource to you all, but we also learn from you all at the same time. It's, it's, a, it's a mutual relationship. That being said, and what advice I would give is to stay close to Jesus and Mary because that's what's really going to help all of us with the faith. Read the, read the scriptures, read the lives and writings of the saints, the writings of the popes. If you can, go to daily mass or watch mass daily. Spend time in prayer. Uh, whether it be contemplative prayer or whatever style you like. And then if you can uh, to do a holy hour as much as you can, if it's possible. What I will say though, is there's a lot of this, this intersection of Catholicism, Catholicism and social media and some of it's good, not all of it's good. And so I would say, just be wary of any sort of Catholic social media influencers or personalities of that sort. I would, put more weight more weight in christ in the teachings of the church and in the the writings and lives of the saints the writings of our current pope and previous popes and that's important too because you know people in the forefront can fail and like provide faulty information and misinformation but like those reliable time-tested uh, sources like the saints and the popes and encyclicals uh, you can't go wrong with. So that's a really good um, piece of advice for anyone discerning the Catholic church. Yeah. So I remember some time ago in the summer, you wrote the, you know, super extensive article called why I left the Jesuits and in it, you described some nasty um, racist experiences that you had with the society of Jesus um, while in formation. So talk a little bit about that article and unpack uh, some of your experiences and talk a little bit about how the Catholic faith played a, a role in um, like healing for you. By way of background, about a year ago, after the killing of George Floyd, so many of us felt called to really look at racial justice in a new way, and especially in light of our faith. I was given the opportunity for my alma mater, Creighton University, to participate in a book club reading the book by Ibram Kendi, uh, how to be an anti-racist. So we would meet weekly to read, uh, we would read the material beforehand, but to process the writings, uh, to kind of, dis we had discussion questions. So 
it was it was actually the really good way to process this important material in light of our my own experience light of the faith during this time it was like i just had a memory recall it took me back to 10 years ago when i was in the jesuits i was in the time period called the novitiate i was having lunch just by myself eating a sandwich you know just a typical day then a group of fellow novices people in my class walked into the to the kitchen area and one of them kind of the more popular one bit of ego egomaniac kind of calls out to me and say oh look that's how indian people eat and it was just such a jarring and shocking statement what was even worse no one challenged him no one said hey that's not right they just laughed they thought it was a big joke and i was in that room feeling shame feeling horrified feeling just caught off guard just sideswiped it was just it was just such a cheap shot i was so angered by this experience and I met with our superior called the novice master. We had, we all had weekly meetings with the novice master and I expressed, I explained, I described this incident and expressed how anger, angered and hurt I was. And the response from the novice master was, well, I don't think he really meant that, you know, he's a good guy. He likes you. So I, I got my first taste of what, or I got, as I look back, a taste of, white fragility of of explaining away racism that i i didn't learn until i read the book white fragility by robin d'angelo last year so i was it was it was kind of like i was it was an experience of being gaslighted where i've got something going i've i've got an experience where i'm feeling hurt i'm feeling pain and i'm expressing it and i'm made to look like i'm the crazy one it was really just an awful, awful experience. And to have this experience within the context, not only the Catholic Church, but a religious order, men who are formed to be priests, brothers, to go serve God globally. The Jesuits are a global order. So for them to to, to be kind of bystanders and in a subtle way, just look the other way in, in the face of racism, when they're called to to minister to people all across the world, just the biggest hypocrisy. So I was, so I, I, as I, I was able to recall this, this incident 10 years later, I felt called to express it to the, the current, uh, the Jesuits are divided into provinces, into regions. So I, so I wrote a letter to the, the, the then uh, province superior um, who, whose term ended last year, kind of expressing this incident and expressing how, you know, this is something that I'd like the Jesuits to consider to, to work on. You know, I didn't re receive a response until a week later, and it was just kind of along the lines of, well, yeah, that was a bad experience. I'll pray for your healing. And I was kind of disgusted by that response. Thankfully, another superior that I cc'd that letter to responded to me directly and said, I'm, I'm on behalf of our province, of the Jesuits, I want to apologize for that experience. We really need to learn from this, do better. And months later, I just, it just sat with me that that wasn't enough. I really needed to, to do something more with this. So I reached out to another Jesuit who teaches on missiology and multicultural ministry to flesh out my experience. And then, so I did that, wrote out a longer document that I presented to the new provincial superior, who's actually a, a good man, a friend of mine. And, you know, he was open to receive it, to pass that along to his head of formation, and, you know, it, 
for me, it was a good experience to to get closure, to process this experience. experience. What the Jesuits will do with that information, I, I'm not sure. I've, I've been given assurance that they're going to implement some more multicultural awareness in their formation. I am pleased to hear that other other regions of, of the Jesuits in the U.S. have been talking about racism actively in their religious formation houses, and a lot of it's coming from their younger men in formation. I know of one who's actually get getting a master's degree focused on anti-racism, so there's a lot of good work happening uh, within the Jesuits. Uh, separately, an article I wrote for NCR on on kind of reclaiming the real Jesus or, or taking away the whitewashed Jesus. I had a Jesuit who's a rector at, at a major institution and is also has a background in art and art history. He actually read my article, reached out to me and said, hey, I want to do more in terms of having a multicultural representations of Jesus and religious art in the in the university. And so you being able to write that write that uh, reflection caused me to gave me that further confirmation that it's something I need to do so I'm grateful to see that there are things turning around and, and it just took the the courage and the grace of God to express these negative experiences for that fruit to be born and it's great to and it's great to see that your experiences are actually being considered and like um like taken seriously and implement it by somebody who's interested in it. So that's, that's good to know. Yeah, so toward the um, end of 2020, you wrote this really stellar, you know, fire article for Where Peter Is called The Mortal Sin of Racism. And I think the last time I checked, it had like up to like a thousand shares, which is really impressive. Um, so I'm wondering like, what influenced you to write uh, that article and give us a little bit of information about that uh, process for it, how that article came about. There were really the idea of the mortals and the racism kind of gave birth to two different articles. One went into Novena News, and the title of that article was Black Lives Are Being Aborted and Not Just in the Womb. And that article really looked at the deaths, the untimely deaths of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others. And when you look at racism, the sin of racism, the inequitable beliefs that the no longer seeing the other as the image and likeness of God, but something less than how that trajectory then can then unfold to murder, to death. And so that's where there's a play in that word mortal. So mortal sin, as we know in the Catholic faith, comprises grave matter with full knowledge that this is a, a grave, uh, grave sin, and then the intent to commit, full intent to commit it. But I was looking at kind of in that play of terms mortal in the sense that where the sin of racism can affect someone's mortality it can it can convolute that imago dei that the other person has and sees the other person as less than and then justify that that person doesn't need to exist or if that person were to die or be murdered it wouldn't really matter so that's very much evident in all the outcry even among catholics and christians people who bear the name christian against the movement Black Lives Matter, or against the the murder of George Floyd, saying, oh, George was a bad man, or he had it coming, or Breonna Taylor, well, you know, it was accidental, or, well, her boyfriend was a drug dealer. There's all these excuses, but what we fail to see is this is a person loved by God, created by God, made in the image of God, and there's this consistent pattern of people 
with black skin color who are dying uh, untimely and unjust deaths. If we are going to be say we're pro-life and we're going to talk about how we're against abortion, but we're not going to talk about black lives being aborted by really by stemming from the sin of racism then our message is not on track or consistent, nor is our belief in the gospel consistent. So that was that was kind of the main impetus with that article. And then the Where Peter's, Peter Is article took into that context of inherent beliefs or unconscious beliefs and the sin of racism. So when we look, look back to the threefold idea of a mortal sin, grave matter, the full knowledge uh, that it's a, a of grave sin and then the, our full consent, someone could say, well, if it's an unconscious belief, then it can't really be a mortal sin, right? And I, that's where I would push back and say, well, we as Catholics and Christians are called to be forming our conscience. We're not called to, to be passive in this area. We need to be reflecting on where am I continuing to fall into sin and where do I need to seek God's grace so great God's grace so that I can reflect more reflect myself as an instrument of of Christ and not as a barrier to Christ and that includes the sin of racism so i i uh, for this article i I utilize almost like a particular examination of conscience where we focus on the sin of racism and unconscious beliefs asking, am I an unconscious racist? Do I hold negative beliefs about certain races? races? Do I have racist actions towards certain races? What am I, what have I done for the racially marginalized or what am I doing to the racially marginalized, racially marginalized? And more importantly, what am I doing to support those who are racially marginalized? Because it's not just, oh, I'm not a racist. I'm not doing racist things. It's, well, what are you doing to help and support your brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing racism? You know, even if we have several, there are people who are privileged, whether it's they're white or they're another ethnicity, but we shouldn't just rely on our, we should not just fall back on our privilege and, and be ignorant in our, in our privilege. We should truly reach out to see Christ in the other and support Christ in the other. I recently, I did a play on the words from St. Jerome, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. And I said, ignorance of the poor and marginalized is ignorance of Christ. And the marginalized includes the racially, racially marginalized. So we can't really draw close to Christ or say that we are drawn to follow Christ if we are not willing to draw close to those people and get into the ugliness that that racism entails, both the racism that we may be harboring in our hearts subconsciously and the racism in the world that if we are passive bystanders, then we're really just committing the sin of the mission. So the second article, the one with where Peter is, was a, real, a call to really look deep into ourselves and how are we, how are we promoting the sin of racism in our, in our personal actions, as well as how can we be, how are we a bystander in a, in society? And a lot of the things that you just highlighted uh, regarding like examination of conscience and exploring the Catholic faith and how that relates to our conscience. Uh, we're going to touch back on in the next question. Um, but I wanted to read one of the most like profound lines uh, in the, an article, The Mortal Sin of Racism, that really just struck me, that really 
um, goes back to your advocacy work that you are passionate about um, within the church. Um, within the article, you said, quote, the systematic travesty of racism demands a forceful response from the church in the United States, end quote. Um, when I read it, it just was like eye-opening. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could like provide a little bit of more detail and unpack what you mean by that. Sure. The Catholic Church, sadly, has been complicit with imperialism, colonialism, slavery, and therefore various various aspects with regard to racism. We can look at slavery in the U.S., where there are bishops who own slaves, religious institutes who own slaves. We could look at the the deaths of indigenous children in Canada and the church's role in there. And what we really need for the for the church is to model what the church is asking of us when we say at mass, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. We need the church to model that and in this regard of the sin of racism, to own what it what it did, how it left people out that are dearly God's people, and to atone for that. That's that's what the church needs to do. That's what the church needs to model for us. And when we look at the events of last year with George Floyd, I was looking around at the bishops and I saw one great bishop, Mark Seitz, who was kneeling with Black Lives Matter. And I saw several others who were just looking the other way or or had had alternative comment commentary. I looked at Bishop Barron, who said that racism is a racial justice is a lady's job. And I actually wrote an article in response to that. Cardinal Dolan, someone that I had admired for years, I thought, oh, he's he's must be outspoken about this. He's a he's a good man. And what it turned out was he decided to write an article about the police department, but he didn't write an article about the about supporting black lives or the injustice that injustice that black people are experiencing. So he and he also wrote an article about how Confederate statues should remain. He wrote and so this mixed messaging from the church really hit me hard and it gave me a lot of a lot of sadness about the state of the US church. In in effect though it created a lot of advocacy of me in me to to work against this. But the church has a lot to own up to in this area. While the U.S. bishops have written encyclicals on racism, one of which was done in the late 70s, Brothers and Sisters to Us, well, the fallacy is in the name itself, Brothers and Sisters to Us. So who are, who are the us and why are Black people not part of the us? Why is this idea that the encyclical is real or the 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 membership in this in the church is white Catholics and the dialogue is, well, we need these people to be the, the black community to be brothers and sisters to us. Well, no, the church by its very nature being Catholic is universal and multicultural. So it shouldn't be an us versus them type of thing. So the messaging in the in the name of the encyclical encyclical itself was was bad. Now, 2018, Open Wide Our Hearts comes out. The issue I have with that encyclical, or one of the main issues, was there was an amendment among the bishops to fully denounce swastikas, um, hood um, nooses, and and Confederate flags. 
And that amendment, which seemed like a perfectly, uh, per- perfectly made sense that it should have passed, did not pass. So the bishops could not unanim- unanimously denounce these three symbols of white supremacy and racism. So until the church can come out unequivocally against racism in a fully and comprehensive way that really denounces white supremacy and and also owns up to the church's complicity in slavery and segregation and in looking at the other way in terms of racism, then the church can't really be a model in this area. Man, thank you for sharing. Um, <laughs> I don't have nothing to follow up on that. Left me speechless with all your your facts and like immense detail regarding uh, the bishops and their failure within the church on this issue. Um, so you previously talked about like the examination of conscience, the three conditions of mortal sin, and it, it kind of sounded like very like introspective, like putting the the shifting the responsibility on us to look interiorly. Um, so within your piece, you provide like a lot of verses from the catechism, you talked about examination of conscience, and you talked about like the conditions of sin. You're like, how do these things help us uh, become like anti-racist, do you think? Yeah, so the sin of racism is twofold. There's the personal sin of racism and there's the structural sin of racism. So the personal sin of racism would be behavior that an individual does or beliefs that an individual holds that that express inequity towards people of various or certain races. The structural sin of racism is often felt societal. It could be the discrimination or the inequitable policing of black and brown people, the inequitable, uh, uh, the inequitable uh, prison uh, uh, prison population of black and brown people. It can be looking at laws and practices such as redlining, it, and um, it could be anything that anything that that perpetuates a widespread structural basis for for people to be disadvantaged because of their race. And so our our goal as Catholics is we want to not only uh, reform our own sins of racism, but we want to also, we are called to, in our society, to participate against any forces of sin that are amid us. So we are called not to be like in the Good Samaritan passage, we're not called to be like the priest and Levite that walk by when the when the person who's injured is on the road, but we are called to be like the Good Samaritan who reaches out and, and assists and ministers to the one who's who's fallen and who's hurt. That includes the racially marginalized. So going back to that examination I was talking to talking about what have I done to the racially marginalized? But what have I done for the racially marginalized? What what am I doing to further their cause to support them? And so there's a call that all of us have toward activism, whether it be in the church or in in our society, to make sure that our brothers and sisters who are racially disadvantaged uh, can can be treated with the dignity that they deserve, with their God-given dignity. One example that a recent event that happened in my locality. So I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bruce's Beach, but there's a 
beach community that was owned by a black family in the 1900s. And they basically had beachfront property that they utilized turned into a place that black people could feel welcome to, to utilize. This is on beautiful Los Angeles County beaches because in other parts of Los Angeles County, black people weren't, weren't welcomed. This was owned by a black family. And over time, the KKK tried to run them out. And what ended up happening was LA County just did eminent domain, took the property away from them and basically robbed this family of decades of generational wealth, which today this property would probably be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So there was an advocacy done by a group of people to make sure that this family gets back what they are due. And it finally came to the point where the the LA County in conjunction with the state of California is working on something for this family. And that's that's really, it was just a beautiful movement to see and to participate in. And that's something that we as Catholics should keep an eye out on what's going on in our neighborhood, whether it be uh, issues at the border, issues with people coming from the border, issues with injustice for black and brown people, injustice in terms of the of policing in the Justice Department, and discern how is God calling us to do more and to be that prophetic voice to speak the word of God, to speak the gospel into these situations. Right, right. Thank you for sharing. Um, and I don't want to put you on spot at either. But I'm wondering, since you've been talking about, um, you know, it sounds like a lot of accountability, uh, putting accountability on others. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, uh, a lot of the information that you're sharing is tailored to, like, the individual. Like, putting the individual, putting me on the spot and, like, checking my own bias and examination of my own conscience and stuff like that. So I'm wondering, like, how do we uh, transfer that? How do we transfer those principles of, like, examination of conscience um, recognizing sin, um, like in institutions and like the macro level. Sure. Basically, we have to realize that we have a lot of power. What institutions want may want to convey is that we don't, but we do. And institutions may use bureaucracy and red tape to deter us, but all it takes is just a voice and a passion. And that's, and, and, as we believe as Catholics, the grace of God to, to speak truth to, could be a city council, it could be a politician, it could be a bishop, it could be a parish council. All it takes is the, the spirit of God to move us to then speak this advocacy, speak, speak the word that God is giving us to these institutions and to not be afraid and to continue to push because there there might be a, a feeling of of feeling timid or anxious or feeling like discouraged oh this is not going anywhere but i a year ago i would have thought oh there's there's nothing good that's going to come from me trying to trying to write against racial injustice and i would beg to differ a year later there's a lot of fruit there there's a lot of hearts that are moved and there's a lot of people that that realize that they want to they want to join in on it. So it's it's really a, a gift and a grace to participate in the spirit and to boldly call out and call forth these institutions to to well, especially if it's a, a church based institution to reflect 
the sacred heart of Jesus and whether it's a societal institution to be that prophetic voice to speak on behalf of the people of God to support God's people. Thank you for sharing. I didn't mean to put you on spot either. <laughs> so my last question is like the best question. Uh, you know, as Catholics, we we have the communion of saints and everybody has like their particular go-to saints, confirmation saints, all that good stuff. Um, who are favorite, who is your favorite saint or if you have saints and like what's some lessons that they've um, like given you over the years that you find uh, important? Over time, Ignatius of Loyola has had a major impact in my life, both his spirituality, his rules of the discernment of spirits, the use of the examined prayer. I really look to him in terms of when I speak to about prayer to others, when I connect what's going on in the church and the faith, I, 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 it seems like on a daily basis, I go back to his principles of spirituality. That being said, I find in my own prayer life, I'm really drawn to the mysticism of the early church, particularly the Eastern Eastern Desert Fathers, and that would be St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Gregory Palama, St. Gregory Nazianzus. It's funny, they're all named Gregory. Uh, there's St. Simeon, the new theologian, Evagrius Aponticus. And there's all these uh, richness in what they have to offer that, even though these are, these are saints that lived centuries ago, they still, they, they believe in the same Christ that we do. And they, they have a lot to teach us in the spiritual life. They really also have the benefit of, they didn't, they lived in the desert. They didn't have social media. They didn't have the distractions. So they can really teach us how to cultivate an interior life amid the distractions that, that we have. What I'm particularly drawn about these saints is I, I really, through them, through reading the the book, The Way of the Pilgrim, I really feel drawn to the Jesus prayer. So that's a prayer that I go back to just calling forth the name of Jesus or a simple scriptural passage that allows me to be centered and to experience the presence of God and the Holy Trinity. But in terms of the saints, the, the one advice I would give is, there were certain saints that I felt, oh, I've, I really need to get on board with them because all the other Catholics are like St. Therese of Lisieux or St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila. Or, there are so many saints out there. And for, for the life of me, I would read their readings. I would appreciate what they wrote, but it just wouldn't speak to me. And it took me a while to realize, well, first off, it's, it all really comes down to Christ, to the Holy Trinity. The saints point us in that direction. And so who, whosoever, whichever saint can do that, that's all that matters. We're, we're all created differently, and that includes the saints, and we're not going to be drawn to every saint, but as, as God uses our uniqueness, our personality, God will lead us to the people that will lead us back to the Trinity. So that's, that's really all that matters is who leads us back to Christ, to, the, to that experience of the Trinitarian communion, and, and that's how we should, that's who and how we should follow in terms of our spirituality. Yeah, definitely a good point. And it all goes back to how the saints can guide us back to Christ. Um, that's a good point to close on right there um, about how the saints lead us and guide us to the center of Christ. Um, but I definitely want to appreciate you coming on and sharing a lot of good information. Um, you gave so much detail surrounding theology and the importance of uh, basically Catholic social teaching um, today. And I just really appreciate all the wisdom that you gave. And it's very enriching because um, not only is it just theology, we all love theology, but it's also can help us 
um, be better Catholics and just people of goodwill, like we pray at Mass, you know, people of goodwill. So <laughs> I definitely appreciate uh, you sharing this information with us today. Thank you, Efren. Thanks for having me on the show. God's blessings to you, your family, and to your listeners. Well, that's going to be it for this episode of Saintly Witnesses. And you guys can tune in to the next episode. Thank you.